Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to our summer reading Guardian Books podcast with me, Claire Armistead. This week is all about recommendations for the sunny weeks ahead. I'll be speaking with Ross Raisin, whose novel A Natural about footballers and their families has surely found its moment in these climactic weeks of the World Cup. Handily for those who regard holidays as an opportunity to pursue those long-postponed writing dreams, he's also just published a nifty little handbook titled Read This If You Want to Write a Good Book. He'll be joining us later to explain how. But first, the studio filled with a rather demob-happy group of books journalists as we gathered to tussle over the must-reads of the summer. Alison Flood made a rare but always welcome appearance alongside the usual suspects, Sean Kane and Richard Lee. This is a season when every section dutifully trots out the reading list of the great and the good, and we are no exception on the Guardian Review. So, Richard... What what has come out? The usual uh, the, the usual selection of excellent recommendations, um, including one from John Bandel, which caught my eye partly because it's the excellent Carlo Rovelli, um, who we've <laughs> heard on this podcast before. Uh, the Order of Time, of course, this time round from Alan Lane. Uh, Banville says anyone with the least interest in the science of the physical world, or you might just say anyone, will be by turns astonished, baffled, and thrilled. Um, so, Richard, I, I detect a bit of backslapping there for yourself this is what this is what this is about backslapping that that we happen the podcast happens to have chosen this person because we have such excellent judgment no, I, just, in, I just really like show. it I think he's very smart it's a really good book and John Bamville agrees hooray yeah exactly <laughs> that, but there, there is a, I'm, I'm partly teasing you but there is also a serious point in this that um, how seriously do we take these recommendations Sean mm. I mean they're pretty serious I mean, you, you know you, you have <laughs> Sam and Rushdie rereading the whole of Nabokov yeah <laughs> I, I, I'd love to see over his shoulder if he actually does read all the Nabokov like fair play Rushdie but you know I don't really believe that um it's there's some great there's some good things in there and there's some stuff that I I've I've actually got on my list like um David Hare's excited about the new Rachel Kushner the Mars Room novel which is a fantastic choice and there's also um things uh, like Aminata Fauna is reading the new collection of David Sedaris essays which is sort of a uh, a year defining event for me every single time there's a new essay collection from Sedaris but then there's sort of people like Mohsin Hamid who says he's going to read the Iliad which I uh, <laughs> that's not the sort of summer reading inverted commas that I'm ever going to be doing well you know? but is that true because in in some ways it you know two weeks on a beach is mm. it exactly the time you can read the Iliad that you never would you'd yeah. never be able to concentrate I sort of on find any that other time. when when I go on holiday in summer my books sort of tend to get fatter and more depressing which is sort of like me in winter <laughs> you know it, I, I sort of tend to go for things like um uh, like a, a couple years ago I remember I have a very memorable experience reading uh, The Natural Way of Things by Charlotte Wood which is a sort of female dystopia set in the Australian outback and I was on a beach in Menorca and I was having a jolly time Well maybe this is partly because you're culturally confused coming from Australia where it is actually the middle of winter <laughs> yeah, in the maybe. middle of summer anyway, I mean what, what we can pretty much bank on is that a lot of people will be going off with books they pick up in the airports won't they so they'll be going off with a lot of genre work won't they and this is where Alison comes in Alison is a is an expert on particularly on crime and thrillers. 
Well, I, I do think that they'll be picking up books in the airport and what's on display on the air, in the airport will be lots of the best-selling titles of the moment. This week, for example, most of the charts are taken up by thrillers, particularly ones with names like The Other Woman and The Dead Ex and things like that, kind of <laughs> dying, dying women. So, yeah, I mean, for me, what I, what I read in, in the summer is horror. I would definitely read horror. I think it dates back to being... Um, a teenager and being on holiday in Portugal and finding Stephen King on the shelf there and delving into into that world for the first time. And it's still what I like to read in hot weather on the beach, something that properly frightens me. So you like like a bit of a shiver, to give yourself a shiver when you're melting in the heat. Yeah, definitely. Or I like to read something that is set in the place where I am. The books that that kind of I really remember reading on summer holidays are Stephen King and also Gerald Durrell I remember reading in Greece, My Family and Other Animals, and it being amazing, kind of matching up what I was reading with where I was. Richard, you're, you're, not one for, you're not one for chillers, are you? You're a bit of a wimp. We've said this before on this podcast. <laughs> yeah, definitely. A bit, a bit some sort of wimp. Um, I mean, I'm, I have a sort of problem in general with crime fiction, with the idea of murdering people for entertainment. But it's slightly even more kind of acute on the beach, where if you're <laughs> sitting there on the beach enjoying your summer holiday and reading about some child being dismembered, I find that a little bit, a little bit unsettling, really. That's basically how I spend my every uh, July and August. What, <laughs> dismembering <Yeah>. children? <laughs> yeah, on a beach. No, I, uh, I, I, I always I tend to these things things in summer more than any other time of year and so I don't think my reading get, tends to get more lofty instead of the manner of Rushdie and uh, and Hamid because I've got more brain capacity I think I've just got a higher tolerance for things that are a bit dark and depressing actually one book that's coming out which I've got a proof of and I, I don't think it's it's not coming out till later in the year is a new Philip Marlowe novel but written by Lawrence Osborne um, which is a thing that's been happening so like John Banville actually wrote a uh, Philip Marlowe novel a couple of years ago under that was his, great I liked that yeah, yeah I did too and so actually I I'm kind of I'm kind of okay with Philip Marlowe having this whole sort of extended universe. Mm. Oh, Banville did it so well. <laughs> yeah, that it, it made you feel happy about yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. You're just like I'm actually glad this book exists as opposed to just sort of trading in on nostalgia and that sort of thing. But so, you do say just trading in on nostalgia, but yeah. actually I can't think of a better way of spending two weeks than reading back through all those Raymond Chandler novels. Yeah, but I mean that's the thing. It's like you go back and read Raymond Chandler. And you go back and you read Agatha Christie, you don't necessarily want to go back and read a contemporary novelist pretending to be Raymond Chandler or Agatha Christie. But when they do it well, it's super, super fun. So mm. I think that's definitely something to look out for uh, when it comes out later in the year. I've had a little peek in there already and it's already pleasing me with all the the dames and broads that are mentioned. <laughs> <laughs> There's another thing that this brings up, which is that we always talk about books at the point of publication when they cost 25 quid mm. and they're, they're in hardback and very few, few people particularly with fiction actually in fact Sarah Perry makes that point in the Guardian Review she says that now Terry Pratchett's gone Stephen King's one of the only authors she buys on in hardback on publication day so she's with you Mm. Alison yeah so so there are a lot of books that came out last summer which will actually be the books that people want to be reminded Mm. of yeah yeah Yeah. so there's a lot of great paperbacks out at the moment for summer reads one of my favorites is Force of Nature by Jane Harper which I don't know if you've read it a fellow Australian Sean but um, she's the author of The Dry which was a massive hit a little earlier she accepts her stories in kind of small Australian communities where the dry a murder of an entire family has taken place and this guy comes back to this isolated community where he grew up he's a police detective now and he has to solve it force of nature which is the paperback that's kind of big now is about four women on a corporate retreat in the australian mountains one of them goes missing and the same detective is back and trying to find out what has gone wrong (laughs) so um yeah the um force of nature is is a kind of strand of thrillers that i'm really enjoying at the moment which is about 
women kind of surviving in difficult situations. So the other one that I really enjoyed is called Fierce by Jin Phillips. It's about a mother and her four-year-old son in a zoo in America and some shooters arrive and everyone takes cover and she's got to keep her her kid quiet basically they're hiding in kind of the porcupine exhibit or something like that when and he's getting hungry and he's four and she's just it's just completely focused on her and him and how she manages to how she manages to survive or otherwise um and it's great and I kind of like that strand of a woman actually being strong and surviving rather than being psychologically damaged or drunk or amnesiac which seems to have been a big thing in thrillers (laughs) lately I've got um, a book that really sadly, it's one of those novels in translation, lovely, perfect little novel in translation that sort of somehow missed its market. And if it's now out in translation. It's called Year of the Drought and it's by a Swiss writer, French speaking Swiss writer called Roland Bouti. And if it had come out this year, it's about 1976, the year of the heat wave. Mm-hmm. And it's, and it's a, a, you know, this pivotal moment on this small Swiss farm when dad makes a disastrous attempt to go into battery farming. You know what happens to chickens when it's very hot in battery farms. You know, the son is, is 13, just just sort of awakening. Mum has decided that she doesn't want to be a farmer's wife anymore. The horse is dying. The dog faints. Um, <laughs> it, it's, it's a sort of perfect little moment. So I, I hope that some people might go off and, and allow this book to find its proper space. Richard, how about you? Uh, well, if, you, if we're looking back a little way, then there's a couple of Mexicans. Again, the, the immigrant crisis, very timely uh, this year with Donald Trump being uh, extraordinary in the way only, only he can. So there's two books from a couple of Mexicans. There's v- Valeria Luizelli's essays, Tell Me How It Ends, about her experiences volunteering to represent people in, in, to help with translations for migrants in, in the court system in New York. And there's um, a book from a couple of years back which did very well by a guy called Yuri Herrera called Signs Preceding the End of the World, which is a terrific, slim novel about a, a young woman who makes the border crossing and finds that her life has changed. But Do you think that slim novels are good for summer reading? Then? That's exactly what I was going to ask. <laughs> Well, I, unlike Sean, I, I don't really summer read. I just kind of read. So, I mean, it's it's something that, that if, if something's good, then I enjoy it on a beach or I enjoy it elsewhere. So. Fat novels. I, I really love a fat novel that takes two weeks to two <laughs> weeks to read and you get totally into the into its world. And I think that a lot of us, if we work five days a week, it's just very difficult to get that very intense engagement with a book that you got when you were a teenager in the yeah. summer holidays. Yeah. And part of what it is, it's almost like a Madeleine moment the summer holiday read you remember what it was like to I remember what it was like to read L.P. Hartley's The Go-Between when I was about 16 actually probably in in that summer of 1976. <laughs> yeah I have a vivid memory of my parents ripping in half Larry Niven's Ringworld on a camping holiday in France because they both wanted to read it at the same time and one of them was further on so it's a kind of massive <laughs> fat book like that. And I think there's something is something about being on the beach and relaxing and having something really huge to dip in and out of. But I think, for me at least, I don't want it to be something that's too hard to read. I want it to be relatively relatively easy to remember what's going on and to keep track of because you're sort of putting it down and picking it up the whole time. Um, something like The Stand, I suppose, another Stephen King title that takes you forever to read, but you can easily, you can easily follow the ins and outs of it all. So let's just end this bit by just each of us have to be very disciplined and just nominate the one book so obviously it's not going to be a book that we will read because it is a book that comes with our recommendation mm. the one book we're recommending that people take off to their beach with them okay Sean I'm going to say one book but it's actually the first of a trilogy oh so you're it's right. <laughs> 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 my way around it but it's both fat and slightly depressing in parts, but also really exciting. And I think everyone should read it. And it is in paperback, so you can go out and get the first one and then go for the second one. And then the 
third book is coming out at the end of the month in hardback but possibly by that time you'll be invested enough that you might actually go out and get it in hardback um it's the vor by brian catling which came out a couple years ago and it was one of those weird big chunky fantasy books that sort of came out of nowhere and had all these recommendations from people like terry gilliam and uh and alan moore and it's quite an amazing story sort of it's set around this idea that in a world that's very similar to ours it's earth um, but not as you know it, there is a, a giant sentient forest called the Vor, which is in an un- unnamed African nation. And it's uh, set at sort of the turn of the 19th, 20th centuries. And it sort of colonizes us now in the nation. And they get wind that the Garden of Eden is possibly at the heart of this forest. And um, basically a whole bunch of different storylines uh, start to cross over each other as people try and make their way into this forest who isn't very pleased that people are trying to uh, go in and take its resources and uh, it's just such a, such a cool world and so the third one comes out at the end of the month so go read this one and it's about 500 pages and you'll love it and, and then you can go read another thousand pages you can also go to books. the you can also if you're in London go to the Royal Academy where you might see Brian Catling yes. s- s- sort of loping around dressed as a cyclops <laughs> yeah that's right he's not actually doing that this year he did want to do it this year but he can't do that this year um but uh, brian catling is this uh really cool sort of visual artist he does sculpture and he does uh, live performances and stuff like that so there's a whole crazy world of catling to enjoy and that's basically how i'm spending my summer and everyone else should do the same how about alison well should i choose something old that i really love or should i choose something that's just coming out now you what can would you choose rather? whatever you really love whatever you really think will make somebody's summer okay well I was I was telling Richard about this the other day but the book that has really moved me and that I have adored lately is Lavinia by Ursula Le Guin so it's her alternate telling of the Aeneid it, she takes a tiny a tiny part from the Aeneid Lavinia who marries Aeneas kind of much later on and tells her whole life so it's set in pre-Rome uh, Italy as Aeneas arrives and Lavinia is the daughter of this minor king there and it, it, it just explores life in the ancient world but from the perspective of of a woman and it's it's amazing and it just filled me with joy every time I read it, it made me feel happy every time I read it and it's part of a strand of books that I really love at the moment which is um, kind of retellings of history from the women's perspective also to get another book I, I really love The Children of Jocasta by <laughs> Natalie Haynes <laughs> if she talks fast enough you won't notice yeah. that. <laughs> um, well we'll allow that one in okay. we'll allow that one Richard uh, by a kind of morphic resonance I'm going to uh, recommend exactly the same thing which is to say Circe by Madeline Miller Yay. she's upended uh, Homeric myth this time putting the, the witch of the island of Aiaia at the centre of the story instead of Odysseus uh, it's brilliant and very timely well, I am going to actually do a bit of a cheat um, as well, because I haven't read this, but he's one of my absolute favourite writers, Rupert Thompson. Mm. And the book is, um, the novel is Never Anyone But You. And um, he is really good, as our Guardian reviewer described it, at doing dangerous psychic territories. But he, he what he also does, and I think this is a project that's going on at the moment in lots of areas of fiction, is, is sort of reclaiming the demimonde, what the 19th century would have called the demimonde. So people who are who live by altern- their own rules. And in this case, it's a biographical novel of the lives of the artists Claude Caun and Marcel Moore, who were sort of surrealists, painters, designers, photographers, who sort of mingled with Dali and André Breton, Hemingway and Gertrude Stein. But the, it also raises this thing about um, gender fluidity, which is just in the air at the moment. A, a lot of my reading this year has been around gender fluidity and identity fluidity. Mm, that sounds really good. I actually did hear that that, book, that novel is particularly good. So, um, yeah, I actually, that's going to be on my list as well. 
I was speaking with Alison Flood, Sean Kane and Richard Lee. Next up, Ross Raisin. In this week's Extra Books podcast, we're treating you to a reading by Bill Nye of the Moomin short story The Invisible Child by Tove Janssen in association with Oxfam. Here's a little extract. The bell came tinkling downstairs, one step at a time, with a small pause between each step. Moomin Troll had waited for it all morning. But the silver bell wasn't the exciting thing. That was the pause. Ninny's paws were coming down the steps. They were very small, with anxiously bunched toes. Nothing else of Ninny was visible. It was very odd. Moomin Troll drew back behind the porcelain stove and stared bewitchedly at the paws that passed him on their way to the veranda. Now she served herself some tea. The cup was raised in the air and sank back again. She ate some bread and butter and marmalade. Then the cup and saucer drifted away to the kitchen, were washed and put away in the closet. You see, Ninny was a very orderly little child. To hear the full story, go to theguardian.com forward slash podcasts. Ross Raisin first appeared on my radar 10 years ago when his debut novel God's Own Country was shortlisted for our Guardian First Book Award and I kept a keen eye on him ever since. He hasn't disappointed. His writing often explores troubled men, a solitary young Yorkshire farmer, a down-on-his-luck Glaswegian shipbuilder, and now he has turned to the world of football with a natural. When I brought Ross into the studio, I socked it to him. Ross, I've, I've asked you in on this summer reading podcast special for two, for three reasons, actually. Um, one is that it struck me that summers and holidays are not just about going down on the beach with a bit of schlocky fiction or whatever. They're also about what uh, thinking about what, what the future might hold. And one thing that people might like to put in their suitcase is your most recent book, which is Read This If You Want to Be a Great Writer, because I'm sure there are many listeners to this podcast who have harboured that little thought in the back of their mind and possibly give it a bit of leeway every summer. But I also wanted to ask you because your novel, A Natural, came out last year. And so the obvious time to cover it would have been last year. But the time at which novels connect with readers are when they come into paperback and it's now just come into paperback. And it just so happens that it's about football. And as everybody knows, or you you must be on a different planet if you don't know, we're absolutely, totally, the whole world is immersed in football at the moment. So uh, welcome. There's a lot of subjects to talk about. There are, yeah. (laughs) Thank you for having me. Nice. This is the first time I think I've been inside this building in shorts which feels and and in a pink t-shirt which i pointed out in the fire i was very i was very pleased to see you wearing a pink t-shirt because as we know pink is not something that footballers generally wear i'm not sure about that i think pink has crept in i think under the into the gender prison i think uh, but they call it scandy pink i think to sort of ah. offset the the difficulty of it but yeah i'd say pink is probably my uh, probably my Favourite colour, which is not the sort of highbrow chat that you might expect on the Guardian podcast, but um, the, the sort of chat we have at the breakfast table quite a lot. Well, we were actually children. going up in the lift talking about the redefinition of pink as a female colour, weren't we? And we, we thought it was Wallace Simpson who was part of that happening. I, uh, it could have been, but I don't want to be quoted on that because I'm not quite sure. So I'm not going to change the subject because actually we haven't come here to talk about pink much as we love it. I want to talk first about read this if you want to be a great writer, because as well as being a novelist, you... In the 10 years since your first novel appeared, you have only written three 
novels, your third one. And that's right, your third. <laughs> because, partly because you have been honing your craft and also passing it on because you teach a lot, don't I you? I do, yeah. Partly in, in this building, actually. I think there are quite a lot of people. I know it's a well-known thing that there is a great demand for creative writing courses, both within universities and also in institutions like The Guardian. But it always comes as a bit of a surprise to me just how popular they are. And, yeah, the course that I've been teaching on here for, well, coming up for a decade, actually, continues to have lots of people wanting to come on it. And it's it's enjoyable, actually. I think I do it. I started off doing it because it, it provided an income for me that... Uh, Literary fiction, as we know, doesn't anymore. <laughs> yeah, I was quite lucky with my first book. And then, you know, things have changed since since then. But I've I've been... Uh, pleasantly surprised, say, by the fact that I actually taken to it with a, an enjoyment that uh, supplements my writing, not just with income, but also with um, getting out of the house, being with people, encouraging people. And I would say that the book, this book here, borrows quite a lot from my teaching in its tone, I suppose, which I try to be encouraging and respectful of anybody's um desire to want to write anything and try to be warm but also with both the book and my teaching to be technically lucid and exacting so this book is one that is intended for certainly in my eyes anybody who has any kind of inkling for getting a pen and paper out and wanting to write something long form in fiction however much experience they've got but also I think it will appeal to people who have some experience of that. So people maybe who have done a creative writing course. Uh, and so far from what I've you know, heard from people who've read it, I think it seems to be uh, working for both. You quote a lot of good writing, among other things, don't you? Which is great, because I found it really interesting because you, you can give an example of what good writing is but then you need to see it in action before you actually understand what it is that animates yeah, that was probably the most enjoyable aspect of writing this book for me, actually. And it's part of its form, because the book is part of a series, the Read This series, hence the title. And the books, are they're great, actually. I really like them. The, the first one, especially the Read This If You Want to Take Great Photographs, to somebody like me who, like a lot of people, I suppose, likes to get their phone out and take a photograph but don't really particularly know what they're doing, so you just blunderbuss it and take you know dozens of them to get a sort of technical eye on how you might take a better photograph I found very useful and I try and so the import of that comes into this book in that it tries to be in some ways boil things down make them quite simple but also be expansive in trying to elucidate what makes a passage of writing stand out and so part of the thing of the book's is that they show by example. So with this, it was quite challenging because obviously I can't... The book is short because it had to be a specific number of it's pages. It's a very desirable little object, I have It's to very say. aesthetically it's pleasing. Yeah, yeah, they're, yeah. they're really good. They, they make very nice-looking books, the Lawrence King. Uh, and, and yeah, it does look good, doesn't it? And it's got it's got all the, the, the famous author quotes highlighted in day-glow yellow. Yeah. I mean, there's just something very pleasing about yeah. it. Yeah. So, so the task was to, to find 25... Uh, extract of fiction, but I could only have a page of each and had to analyse a page in a page. But it was made simpler by the fact that 
each time it's in the context of a specific technical aspect, whether that's dialogue, point of view, characterization, etc. And I like that kind of work. And so I enjoyed that. And I think that is one of the aspects of this book that is a little bit different to most creative writing books, which I don't think have quite so much showing by It's show, not example. tell, isn't it? Or it's you show could as say well that, as tell. Yeah, yeah, which yeah. Is, phrase I don't think I actually use in the book, but uh, <laughs> one that does get used. It does get uh, used. I, yeah. And it was also important to me, certainly, that I gave a wide spread of contemporary and classic texts. And so also, from Italo Calvino, Lydia Davis. Yeah, and it was, yeah, I enjoyed doing that, partly because, you know, some of the writers... I picked for it, ones I'd not come across before. Well, I'd come across them, but I'd not read their work fully before. So it was a little, well... Emma McBride, not... Alice Munro. I mean, you, you've taken, yeah. it's quite a, quite a sweetie shop, isn't it? It is. And it's also, it's, it seems almost daft saying it because it's so common sense. But um, one thing I have realised by looking at other examples of this kind of book, not just for creative writing, but for other art forms, is... It, it's quite, it's not surprising, but it's it's still quite staggering how when those examples of great practitioners do get shown, they're always men. Um, and so it's important that this book contains 25 writers. I can't remember the exact split, but it's it's half and half men and women, which is just a, it's such a stupid thing to have to even flag up. But it is something that I wanted to flag up, partly in talking about the book, actually, in interviews and stuff, because... It is one of those things that, you know, it becomes almost invisible. It goes under the radar. People don't sort of make a point of the fact that that happens. But It's like the whole of happens. women's fiction is considered a genre, almost. Yeah. <laughs> fiction by women. It's, it's, it's given a label, yeah. <laughs> anyway, one of the things you say is fiction is the place where people go to have new thoughts. There are lots of other places for the regurgitation of old ones. And so I, I'm going to use that to segue into <laughs> your novel, A Natural, which is, as I said at the beginning, about a footballer and football. But it's not the triumphal sort of football that we're all watching on our televisions at the moment. It's about a team that are relegated somewhere down the bottom of some division that never gets on telly. <laughs> and the characters in it who, who all, to some extent, have not quite fulfilled their potential. Is that true? I'd say that is true, yeah. It's um, in talking about... The novel, it involves talking about football, but I think, broadly speaking, perverse as this might sound, I don't see it as a football novel. It's a novel about one character in particular, but a a selection of characters who struggle with things that I think a lot of people struggle with, to do with power, to do with sexual identity, to do with agency, but it's placed within this world of lower league football which immediately I suppose on the tin makes it niche as a novel Um, and I think it's been a bit of a perhaps been a bit of a struggle to frame the book in such a way that it is it's just a novel about people without framing it as it's a football novel or it's a it's a gay football novel Mm. but I think that um, undeniably for me a lot of the interest that I found in writing it was interweaved with my own interest in football, my own interest in people who play football, not, you know, the shiny ones that you see on television at the moment playing in the World Cup, but the ones especially who haven't made it in the way that, not only that they have dreamt, but in the way that their whole 
life has been prepared for only one possibility of you will be this person, you'll be a successful product of our academy, say. And then when you don't become that person, what happens to you? How do you deal with yourself when you've not had any social or educational preparation for life outside of the bubble? The life arc is very peculiar, isn't it? Because it's like they have all been stars at some point when they were recognised as naturals, to use the title. Yeah. So, uh, But that's often at the age of 14, 15, 16. By the time they're 17, they're in a youth academy. And then by the time they're 20, they might never actually get to play in a match. They might always be sitting on the subs bench. Yeah, well, most of them don't. Most of them, you know, the ones that are sitting on the subs bench, are the, essentially, they're the, they're the ones who've made it because... I don't know the exact percentage as it stands right now, but uh, it's well into 90% of academy products, as they are known, uh, who don't get a contract and either fall out of football entirely, or that's most of them, actually, or move abroad or go down the leagues, which is what the main character in this novel does. And he, he does so by moving away from his home, his family, his community that he has known, moving away from... Any kind of... Moving south, which is your own move from Yorkshire down, down south. Uh, yes, that's true. Although the um, I live very decidedly in London. The place where the main character, Tom, lives is uh, very deliberately not made to look like any identifiable place because football being what it is, if the club that he plays for was identifiable as a real club, there could be all sorts of... Issues. So it's just called town. It's just called town. It is a town <laughs> somewhere, and, and it isn't modelled on a, on a real on a real town that I'm just sort of you know cloaking. It's it's a town somewhere in the south, somewhere near the coast, which plays in, in the fourth tier. They play in League Two, which is the yeah the fourth division. They've all got silly names because they've it's all been rebranded so many times to uh, fit the whim of the Premier League. When yeah. I was looking at the reviews, I was interested to see that hardly anybody mentioned Leah, who's, who's the other it's main true. character, who's, mm. who's a footballer's wife. And um, I was really astonished because actually for me, Leah was I identified with absolutely as much as Tom. And Leah is this, has, a, has a toddler husband whose career isn't going great. The fear always of having to move and, you know, and move downhill. And, you know, and also having to keep up with the other wives. Yeah. Um, this is a character, an unusual character. As well. Yeah, it's true. It's interesting, yeah. Well, I say it's true, not that I've read any of the reviews, but it's been my, my sense of it. Um, and certainly in talking about the book, she's not been as of as much interest to talk about. But for me, in writing the book, she was deeply of interest. I think I'm drawn often to characters who have some kind of crust of public expectation or public false knowledge about them stereotypes i suppose so so first time you it was a a sort of loner up on the up on the moors quasi psychopathic almost the second time is a an ex-shipbuilder who glaswegian who who goes into a downward spiral that's right. Yeah, it's yeah. good that you remember my. Uh, uh, oh, I, 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 I am a student of your book, but and it helps that there aren't sort of a hundred to <laughs> to keep up with. Yeah, that's true. And I would say that they're all. You know, one of the great things about your work is you just feel you're coming into something that has been sort of really properly, thoughtfully crafted and developed. So the worlds are very, very complete in them. Well, they're very different from each other. Is the thing that's part of my drive. I think as a as a fiction writer is that I like to think about and investigate worlds, people, 
places geographically that I don't know necessarily that much about at the outset because writing for me is very and this is you know ties in with the the read this if you want to be a great writer book writing is very much a process of discovery and learning it's about learning a language more than it is about replicating a language that you already know and that excitement is extremely important for me in my motivation for writing and it's very related to my relationship with reading as well I read into the unknown and I like to write into what is at the beginning an unknown. And so the character of Leah is one that, on the surface, I found very alluring to think about what it might be to have that life as the partner of not just a footballer but a a lower league footballer, which is a very kind of specific and, I think, uncomfortable position in that you don't have the focus that you would have if you were, you know, the the lined up women that were in the paper the world cup wags um but nonetheless in that town where your partner plays you will be very well known and you will be discussed as an object on social media by supporters you'll be recognized about town and yet you may well have a job of your own if the player that you're attached to is higher paid then you might not and so this this you know and at that level players still you know the I think the average league two so division four player at the last reckoning which is a few years ago I think the yearly average that they get paid is about forty thousand pounds a year so it's a lot of money still and she has in essence been coerced into giving up her life for the player that she's married to, the captain of the team. Who is absent in lots of ways, not always because he's away. He, he, he is, yes, he is. In some ways, he's a stereotype too of the hyper-masculine but still lost footballer which populates that world. And it's a very strange world as well because, you, you know, you're, you're often made to, if you're her especially, move from place to place, often at a high frequency often to places that you've probably never even heard of. You have no community, you've no family, you've no attachment to it whatsoever. You're you're plonked in a place and expected to just live there and be, in many ways, alone. And aloneness is, I suppose, in a lot of ways, the big theme of this book. All the various characters are, in their different ways, solitary. There's a wonderful scene of her at the... Sorry, going on about Leah. Um, no, I good, feel that well, I need to give her her due, as nobody else has done so, so far, of her at the, at the supermarket with a screaming toddler and sort of just seizing things because she doesn't know what to do. Suddenly the situation's out of control. She doesn't know who knows who she is. She knows that a lot of people will know who she is and just wants to get the hell out of there, but feels she has to buy things. Yes. That's um, the scene. Actually, when I do events and readings and stuff, that's the scene that I most often read. Partly as a bit of an up yours to the sort of expectation that this is all about football. So I tend to read that scene. And also dramatically, it's, um, it's quite contained, so it's quite useful for reading. And one of the things that it tries to, I think, articulate that scene is the idea of anonymous abuse that goes on within that, that football is almost synonymous with and the relationship the parallel I suppose that the terraces have with social media in that it is both are places that some people take uh, an excitement and a permission to abuse people without their face being you know leveled they they can do it invisibly and that's the feeling that she 
encounters in that scene in the in the supermarket and and that's the scene in which i think the tension that has built up so far to that point in the book with her comes out and one of the ways in which it does come out actually is in a implicit homophobia on her part which is another thing i wanted to explore the idea of homophobia being something that is sometimes used very overtly as abuse within the world of football but something that is also steeped into lots of areas of various people within the world's lives that they perhaps aren't even fully conscious of. Two men were looking at her, smirking across the freezers. She moved away, ignoring Tyler's anguish that his pepperami was gone, dropped somewhere. She got to the end of the freezers and turned the corner, coming back the other way along the next aisle, pulling random items from shelves, olives, brandy butter a Christmas cheese board with a miniature bottle of port squeezed into its heart. But Tyler was thrashing now, screaming, and she had to stop and get him out of his seat. She held his head against her chest, shushing him. The men were there again, at the far end of the aisle, watching her. One of them said something to the other, which made them both laugh. With one arm around Tyler, the other on the bar of her trolley, she turned and walked away. Half a minute later, when she looked round again, she saw they were following her. She sped up, her heart beating harder, but it was difficult to manage the trolley and Tyler together, so she abandoned the trolley, people looking at her, judging her. She hastened on past them, past the shelves, full of relaxed, competent mothers on the sides of nappy packs, and as her anger mounted, she wanted to stop and scream. At the shoppers, at the men, at Tyler. But she knew what would happen if she did. It would be Chris who would be punished for it. An internet telltale. A chant on the cop. The men were blatantly pursuing her now, marching down the central aisle a little way behind her. She hurried towards the exit. The tutting woman had recognised her as well, it crossed her mind. Another of the army of anonymous eyes that followed her about in public, willing her to fail. She stopped. For a few seconds, she did not move. Voices, laughter, blurred past her. When she turned round, the two men, taken by surprise, both looked down at the floor. As she stepped towards them, they hesitated, then veered towards the closest rank of shelves. They were pretending to look through a box of wrapping paper rolls when she got to them. "'Enjoying yourselves, boys?' she asked, taken aback that it was her voice saying this. They blanked her, and she realised that they were younger than she had at first thought. "'Get off on this, do you?' She was speaking loudly. Other people had noticed. One of them made to walk away, but they were surrounded, blockaded by trolleys, a small, intrigued crowd already gathering. Tyler made a sudden lunge downwards, so powerfully that she almost dropped him. There, poking out of his left welly, was the pepperami. She took it out and handed it back to him. Instead of putting it in his mouth, he held it out, offering it to one of the boys. The fleshy little nub of meat protruded obscenely from its slimy plastic sheath. She laughed, and some of the other shoppers joined in, while the two boys, clearly terrified, gave each other a look but remained frozen where they were. It's all right, Ty, she said. I don't think they'd know what to do with one that big. They're only used to each other's. In the ballyhoo that followed, she walked away, the crowd parting to let her through her legs transporting her weightlessly towards the exit, electrified, abruptly alive.
the person who has been fixed on as the central character and is, in a way, the central character, Tom, is a repressed gay. And people have always said of your novels that it involves sort of very male, loner males. They hmm. all involve loner males. And you've talked about Tom as a loner. But what struck me is, you know, whether you're talking about Sam in God's Own Country or um, Mick in Waterline, that it's also about articulation people who can't articulate themselves where does that go if you can't quite articulate yourself and Tom is a very very acute case of this because he just can't express his sexuality he doesn't have the words for it he doesn't have the permission emotionally yeah. to find a shape for these feelings I, I would say that he doesn't even if he did I don't know if they were the words that he would even use about his own sexual identity I think that the one of the primary interests for me you know and people you know people love banging on about, oh, I wonder if there's any secretly gay footballers, you know. There was a headline, in, it was a main story piece in The Sun only a few weeks ago about, we know, in, Itali in like creepy italics, we know the identity of a really famous bisexual player, but we're not going to tell you who it is to protect him. That's, in, that's that sort of surface level of who are the secretly gay players is as far as the discussion often gets. I'm more interested in the fact that if, for a lot of people who's sexual identity doesn't fit with the template of what it's supposed to be in that world, they don't know about that themselves. They, they don't know what being gay or, or being bisexual is because it's just not something that they have ever had spoken about except for in a certain way. And so all this conversation about, oh, well, if, you know, the average is one in 50 men in the country are gay, that means one in every Premier League club must be gay. I just think it's... A, an obfuscating and slightly pointless debate. Much more interesting is the idea that your identity is forged in this certain way, and so if you discover about yourself that you are having feelings, say, as simple as that, that you don't understand, that creates a kind of repression, an inwardness that, you, yes, you don't know how to deal with because you've never, you've never been given the opportunity to, to deal with life in a normal way. You don't have normal relationships with women. You don't have normal relationships with people that are older than you. You, you exist within this power structure, this hierarchy, that is completely all-consuming. And so articulacy is one of the things that just isn't, isn't there for a character like him. It's not just him as well. It's also... It's also very embedded within the world, I think, that um, you go inside a football club and it's not full of, pe I say people, men, it's mainly men inside football clubs, speaking in an articulate way. They speak in the way that is allowed. And one of the things that was interesting in talking to footballers as a group is that they were pretty much exactly as I expected them to speak. But when you talk to them one-on-one, -on -one, outside of anybody else's earshot, suddenly some of them are entirely different people and it's completely surprising to me it shouldn't be maybe but it, I find it very surprising and it's because it, it's not that they are necessarily all inarticulate but there is a deliberate tamping down a repression of articulacy because you're allowed a certain level of emotional linguistic expression and anything else is just going to have the, the you're going to be ripped apart for it and the book so the style of the book the language in which I've written it tries to tries to deepen that idea I suppose it's different from my other books my other novels well they're all different from each other in, in, in terms of their language but they they all have a different range of articulacy but in each one you're reaching for an articulacy that isn't yours you know for yeah, the Glaswegian ex-shipbuilder his, his language is very very richly and fully realized and 
and likewise Sam in God's Own Country. It's true, yeah, it's almost like I'm... You make uh, it the most difficult I, I, aim you possibly could and then pursue it for yeah, four I years think I, I think in I your probably, shed. Yeah, I probably have a, some, some sort of shyness or sheepishness about uh, not exploring myself, but, but writing anything that I feel in the writing of it is connected to myself, and I think partly for that reason... And, and it's also to do with I'm not I'm not as interested in myself as I am in other people, and so I do tend to create characters that are entirely out of my own scope. I'm writing a novel at the moment that is, um, yeah, outside in, in a different way from stuff I've done before. In that, um, in that it isn't a man actually. So so Leah I suppose was the first major female character that I have had in one of my books. But this book is a that I'm writing now is a novel with a first-person female narrator who is in her 50s and well, at one point in the book, certainly the latest point in the book she is, but it might cover her whole life in some ways. But but again, it is, though, still set within the kind of hyper-masculine world that I think probably I do have some kind of a, an interest in, in that she's a chef. She's a, She works in a, a professional kitchen. And so a lot of the the themes and a lot of the actual day-to-day how men talk to each other and how women fit into that is similar in some ways to, certainly to this book, A Natural. I was speaking with Ross Raisin. Read This If You Want To Be A Great Writer is out now with Lawrence King. A Natural is out in paperback from Vintage. And let us know what your reading choices are by finding us on Twitter at Guardian Books or by commenting on the podcast page at theguardian.com slash bookspodcast. Next week, we'll be looking towards the frontiers of science and technology with James Bridle and Marcus Dusortoy. But for now, from me, Claire Armitstead, and my producer, Susanna Trezillian, goodbye and happy reading. from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.